Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. Today we're responding to the question, can trees save the world? When people think of climate change, I imagine they think of the smog and smoke pouring into the atmosphere as we burn fossil fuels to power our cities, our cars and our lifestyles. And you'd be right. But perhaps an understated accelerant is the loss of vast forest ecosystems, which are often destroyed for agriculture, housing, development and the forestry industry. Not only are trees a vital source of oxygen that ensures we can breathe the breath of life, but they're also one of our most powerful defences against climate change the original carbon capture technology, if you will, immaculately designed by the first agronomist. Speaking of agronomists, today we have Tony Renato joining us, also known as the forest maker. He has an incredible story, a simple way to replenish and rejuvenate our tree stocks around the globe. When we think of deforestation, many of us probably think of planting trees, which is the right impulse, but that can be expensive, hard work, and not near as effective as we'd like, especially in hotter climates. What if there was a better way to grow trees, literally right under our noses, but forgotten over centuries of modern farming practices and crop production? Talking climate change can get pretty bleak at times, but this is one of those stories and developments that gives genuine hope for a really complex and overwhelming problem. And I hope you'll find it as inspiring as I did. What appeared as a bush caught my attention. And honestly, in that moment, everything changed. And immediately I knew it's not a bush or a weed, it's a tree. And so in that instant, everything changed and I realized it's not a technical issue. I don't need multiple millions of dollars. Everything that I need is in the ground. Tony Renato is an Australian agronomist who works for World Vision and has been a force in the climate change story. He worked in Niger for a couple of decades, helping farmers to work with nature to restore native forest land and to grow enough food to support their local communities. His focus has been in Africa, but his work is going global thanks to a strategy called Farmer Managed Natural Regeneration, which we'll get to. In 2022, he released his book, The Forest Underground, which is an incredible memoir outlining his story. It's also been turned into a documentary by Volker Schlondorf, which you can watch on SBS. In 2018, he won the Right Livelihood Award, also known as the Alternative Nobel Prize, for demonstrating on a large scale how drylands can be greened at minimal cost, improving the livelihoods of millions of people. And he was awarded membership to the Order of Australia in 2019 for significant service to conservation as a pioneer in international reforestation programs. He recently gave a TEDx talk in Sydney and he's one of the most humble guys you'll ever meet. I'm sure you get a sense of that through our conversation. Welcome to Deeper Questions, Tony Renato. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Aaron. So I loved reading your book, The Forest Underground. I found it inspiring and uh, just super interesting and a, a really thrilling ride. Um, and, and as well, it's like a physically beautiful book, like the sort of book you can put on a coffee table uh, and just, yeah, have a flick through when you kind of want to be inspired. Um, when did it become clear to you that you had uh, a bit of a story to tell? So we, we lived in Niger, West Africa, for 17 years, and I, I always knew there was a story there. I just couldn't conceive of filling a whole book. It, it didn't seem to be enough enough story. And often people would ask me, Tony, you're going to write a book? And I, I'd just dismiss it and say, well, that's never going to happen. <laughs> but I was greatly encouraged in 2018, another 
publisher wrote a book called The Forest Maker, and they asked me to contribute uh, one chapter. And it was a very, very positive experience. I had good help from their ed- editors, and I, I felt, no, this is something that perhaps I could do. So that sowed the seed. And then a little bit later, I was thinking, as I get older now, I'm 66, as much as I love the field work, I can't do that the way I did. I don't even manage projects. Many other younger people come have come on and they do that. What's the best use of my time in this season to have the greatest impact? And the thought occurred to me, if I could inspire the next generation and give hope, that would be really a really good um, use of my time. And I, I remembered back to my childhood what a big role reading books, uh, particularly biographies, had on in my life, big impact. And so then then uh, 2019, with all the lockdowns that stopped me from traveling, I, I usually travel up to six months of the year. Yeah. I had no excuse, and we just get, got down to it and started writing. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. And I'm guessing your uh, incredible wife was uh, helping you with that project as well? Oh, yes, and, and uh, with uh, the initial editing and suggestions and her memory for dates and, and uh, certain occasions is much sharper than mine. So there's a little bit of correction going on there with her help. (laughs) (laughs) From early in the book, I I was quite struck by how you had this um, highly acute sense of uh, environmental concern and justice, uh, even as a young uh, fellow growing up. Uh, Do you have any idea what triggered these things inside you at such a young age? Not really. These things were just uh, embedded. And I I remember driving to the nearest town where our grandparents were every Sunday and being shocked by um, these bare Mamanji ranges. And in my mind, in my mind's eye, I was up on those hills in my gumboots, shovel in hand, putting trees back in the landscape. It was just part of me. But I I think um, growing up, there, there were Bible stories and a love for God's creation um, my mother's faith had a big impact on me and it gave me a framework for living. I, I realized that there are more important things to life than just financial security, that we, we do actually have a duty of care for those less fortunate than ourselves and a duty of care for, for creation, for, yes, definitely use it, benefit from it, but steward it, look after it make sure it's there for the next generation. So all, all those things were just there, I think. Yeah, for sure. And you grew up physically doing these things as well, a bit like you mentioned, having a shovel in the hand. But, um, so that, that was a part of your childhood, I'm guessing? Well, we didn't have a farm, but I was the gardener in the family. So I was, yeah, I often had the shovel in my hand, loved growing things in the garden. And any chance that I got, I'd always plant a tree. Even, you know, if I go visiting somewhere and there's an opportunity, we'd plant trees. Terrific. And you had a fascination for geography and, and Africa in particular. What was it about these foreign parts of the world that captivated you? Well, it, it might sound a little bit strange to you, but they weren't concreted over, fenced in, built over. They were still, to a degree, they were still wild and free. And there was something about that, the naturalness of it, the freedom of it, that really, really attracted me. And I, I, some, I would even think at the time, ah, Everybody talks about the U.S. They want to go to the U.S. and see all the sites. They never really attracted me, but Africa was always very interesting for me. And then uh, later on, you moved into uh, agronomy. Could you tell us what is an agronomist and what was it about that work that kind of captured your interest uh, where you devote your entire life to it? Sure. So uh, agronomy is just the study of plants. 
and an agronomist in in the agricultural sense helps farmers to grow plants um, at, at an optimum. So the right seed, the right chemicals, and, and all that sort of thing. That's what an agronomist does. Um, I wanted to be useful. I'd, I'd seen on television children just like me, who through no fault of their own happened to be born elsewhere, they were going to bed hungry while we had everything that we needed. And it just seemed so unjust to me. And as I mentioned, I love gardening. So I thought maybe this is a skill that if I had that, I could really make a difference. After that, after your university, you, you graduated, you got married, you had a kid, and then you packed up shop and moved to Africa and um, Niger specifically. What was the, the culture shock like for you guys and, and how hard was it in those early years? So, so there was certainly culture shock, but not as much as you would expect. And I, I think we were re- as reasonably well prepared as we could be. I, I read as much as I could on the culture and the country we were going to. We spoke to uh, individuals who'd lived in this region and, and came back to Australia. Um, at one stage, we did a beginner's course in anthropology because different cultures are wired totally differently. So those kinds of things weren't a total shock to me. Um, the biggest biggest uh, shocks were initially, you know, you go there as an adult and you're fully uh, conversant and then you're back to zero because you don't know the language. And little children sniggering and laughing. Look, look at him, a grown man. Can't even say hello. You become the baby. <laughs> so it's a little bit humbling and humiliating, but um, if you can learn to laugh at yourself and learn with children, children are the greatest teachers. You sort of practice practice on them. It, it, it really helps you get over that. We had a number of illnesses, quite serious illnesses at different times. So this this is uh, Niger is a very poor country on the edge of the Sahara Desert. So a lot of meningitis, hepatitis, different things, you name it. <laughs> we we seem to collect them in those early years, mm. and always always being not not well in the in the high temperature and the harsh environment. These things were very wearing. So how did you kind of keep your spirits high um, when you were surrounded by um, these issues? And I think as well, like a, just like death was kind of lurking around the corner a lot. And um, you, you talked about a scorpion being in your shoe one time. And these are not like small furry scorpions. They're like death stalkers or something, from what I could see. <laughs> well, uh, to be honest, uh, very often our spirits weren't high because there were a lot of challenges. And the death you mentioned, there's a lot of hunger and particularly children were the most vulnerable. So we did see very, very hard things. Hmm. Illness in our own families, my own personal failure, the project I was running wasn't working. Imagine how discouraging you've devoted your life to this. You've left home and told people you're gonna make a difference and your own work is not working. we, We were often down in the dumps, but I guess for me, the constant in my life was a strong sense of calling. We, we had this sense, this is where we're meant to be. It's the right place for now. And, and that'd help you <laughs> weather the storm. Yeah, persevere. My, my wife and I, we had each other. So we're usually not both down at the same time, so we could pick, pick each other up. Mm. And then honestly, a lot of prayer, a lot of scripture. And if I could share... Uh, just one one example of that. Yeah, go for it. So, uh, 1983, the rains failed, and a lot a lot of hunger around. When I was a child, one apart from the environmental degradation that uh, impacted me, seeing seeing uh, poverty and hunger overseas had a big impact. But 
here we'd been living in Niger for two and a half years. And it wasn't like some television show that affected you emotionally, but you didn't have any relationship with those people. These were my friends. Mm. I'd shared with them. I'd slept in their villages, ate their food and, and reciprocated when they came to town. And now they were suffering. And we couldn't get permission to distribute food. We didn't have money anyway. And there seemed to be no grain. And, and my friends were suffering. So th this was a real burden on us. And um, I, I remember one morning, uh, I'm an early riser. I was trying to eat my breakfast and a lump was forming in my throat. Tears were starting to come to my eyes. But the Bible was just randomly open on the table next to the bowl. And the, the verse said, uh, fear not and be not dismayed by this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but mine, says the Lord. Yeah. And, and this deep peace came over me. I'd been quite distressed up until that point, but I, I just knew that something very, very dramatic was going to happen. And within two weeks, the blocker, the person who wouldn't give us authorization, passed away. <laughs> that wasn't my prayer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd hope not. <laughs> I just asked for a transfer, but I guess he got the big, big move. Um, over the next six months, we received half a million dollars and were able to buy 1,800 tons of grain and feed about 35,000 people. So these sorts of things, when, when that very dramatic answer comes, it's hard to be down in the dumps. It's, it's invigorating. Mm. And so just to go back a step, um, there were some issues that were pretty unique to, to Niger living there um, with their economy that made the, the trees hard to grow, which was your major project. It wasn't only that, but it was, it was hard to keep them in the ground when they did grow as well. Um, could you talk about the, the value of trees in a non-industrialized economy just to help us understand what the kind of context was like? Certainly. And uh, we're also fighting perceptions. So, so before I answer that uh, directly, People had a perception that to be a good farmer, you needed to clear the land. So a lot of trees uh, were removed simply to grow food. Now, ha having said that, at the same time, there's no gas or electricity. So people had high demand for fuel wood and in some cases charcoal to cook with, e even for lighting, let alone the building of their huts and, and uh, fences and so on. So high demand for fuel wood and and, and um I won't call it timber, it's not milled timber, but just rough rough sticks and, and uh, logs. Uh, very, very harsh climate. We're on the edge of the Sahara Desert there. So if you're talking about tree planting and you've got this little seed, seedling with a tiny root ball, the odds are against it. We have an eight-month dry season. If you're lucky, it'll rain in the rainy season, but often there are droughts. In the dry season, there are free-range goats, uh, termites, you, you name it, the odds are stacked against the survival of these little seedlings. Yeah, all sorts of challenges. And and I mentioned the farming practices and the free-range grazing. It's not the trees wouldn't grow there, but there were these constraints that made it extremely difficult. And so talking about trees in general, they, they have um, many uses. What are the benefits of keeping the trees in the ground? And what are some of the issues that then come from deforestation? Can I read a short piece from one of my heroes? It's very short. Yeah, go for it. Because, you know, a question like that, I, I could spend the whole podcast talking about the benefits of trees. <laughs> you turn me off. <laughs> but th this is just, just a very short piece by a forester called Richard St. Barbie Baker. And uh, he was an international forester, mm. uh, devoted his life to saving existing uh, remnant forests, but teaching sustainable management of trees as well. And this is what he wrote. It's quite, quite poetic. 
we had better be without gold than without timber. Hmm. Wood is necessary to civilize life, and therefore it is the basis of civilization. The greatest value of trees is probably their beneficent effect on life, health, climate, soil, rainfall, and streams. Trees beautify the country, provide shade for humans and stock, shelter crops from wind and storm, and retain the water in the soil at a level at which it can be used by man. The neglect of forestry in the past has accounted for the deserts that exist because of the fact that when the tree covering disappears from the earth, the water level sinks. When the forests go, the waters go, the fish and game go, crops go, herds and flocks go, fertility departs. Then the age-old phantoms appear stealthily, one after another. Flood, drought, fire, famine, pestilence. It's, it, it, I couldn't have put it more eloquently than that. And it's exactly what we experienced in Niger Republic. In my childhood growing up in Australia, two decades before we landed there, this region had been a biodiverse dryland forest with springs of water here and there, with patches of cleared farmland productive in between the trees, even wildlife. In two short decades, this region could barely support life. Wow. You've hit a raw nerve there. This is uh, very, very important, <laughs> not just in developing countries. Yeah, everywhere. And um, kind of tied in with that, the, the process of um, desertification, if, if that's how you pronounce it, um, is, is that a natural phenomenon? Like you were fighting the Sahara there, or is that something that is largely human-induced as well? So th there's definitely um, natural deserts where it simply doesn't rain. There's probably never been trees there, and without massive irrigation, there never will be. But I, I can testify from my travels, and I've had the privilege of going to very many countries, including across the Middle East, where we, we would perceive this as true desert. But my observation is that there are vast tracts of the Earth's surface which were once forested, and over time, through clearing and overgrazing and abuse of fire, the trees were removed. And I, I don't call them deserts anymore, not, not in the true sense. I call them altered landscapes. And my rule of thumb is, and, and based on my experience in Niger, if there was a forest there in the past, even the distant past, theoretically at least, we should be able to bring that back to some approximation of what it was. Okay. And we'll uh, no doubt get into that uh, further into the interview as well. Mm. Uh, just to kind of, yeah, understand the, the issues as well, um, you're, in your book you talk about um, the way that European land practices were, were largely encouraging monoculture crop growth and that this was a massive problem for African countries. Um, would you say that these practices had a significant effect on the, the mass poverty that kind of engulfed much of the African continent? Oh, it, it certainly contributed. I, I couldn't put a percentage on it, but um, where agriculture shifted from self-sufficiency and a focus on local trade, meeting local needs, to large-scale, often monoculture, so single crop, uh, export-oriented crops. So it displaced food growing in, in some cases. People who grew their own food now became day laborers. So no security in the job. Off-season, you're on your own, mm. and you've abandoned farming yourself. The kinds of crops that were encouraged in some colonial regions, peanuts, cotton, rubber, 
pineapples, coffee, nearly all for export. So in that sense, most definitely, this has contributed to poverty. And I, I would say it's left a legacy of a certain mindset where that's what agriculture is about. It's not about growing food or meeting family needs. It's it's about profit and yeah. export oriented, more glamorous and, and so on. So it's kind of like growing for this enormous machine outside your own control almost. Outside your own control. And, and the fact of the matter is that international markets are fickle. They might be high today, but low tomorrow. They, they boom and crash and the bulk of the profit doesn't go to the, the grower, unfortunately. So this is a, a lot of what you're up against with your project, going over to Niger to plant trees. And after quite a few years, you seem to have very little to, to show for it. Um, there's a story you share where um, you're, you're, uh, one day you're in your kind of beat up ute, you're surveying the landscape and kind of marveling at the futility of it all. And you talked about it like you were trying to push back the Sahara Desert with a hand broom and shovel, <laughs> um, which sounds pretty crushing. But then you had this moment where everything changed. Um, could you tell us about the, the bush you found and this epiphany you had in the midst of all this struggle and futile work? Sure. And, and part of the despair was I, I really had given it all my energy. When you're young, you're convinced that you can change the world yesterday. And it, I, as I mentioned, my work was failing. I, I wasn't having any impact. Despite my best efforts, I read widely. I grabbed any consultant I could and plied them with questions. I experimented with different methods of tree planting, different species. Nothing worked in a sustainable or economically viable way. 80%, sometimes 90% of the trees planted died. And to add insult to injury, the very people that we were trying to help, because remember that, that little piece about the value of trees, viable agriculture would not be possible without some level of tree cover for protection, for lower temperatures, or all, all, all that sort of thing. So I was doing it for their good, but they called me the crazy white farmer. <laughs> Who is this guy? And an older farmer said to me, Tony, perhaps my grandchildren will benefit, maybe my children will, but I never will. Uh, the concept being that trees take forever to grow and they're hungry today. So I, I certainly sympathized with them, but I, I, I knew trees were necessary. This day, it would have been one of those times when it could have been quite easy to throw in the towel, all too hard. Using this method in this context is a failure. It will never have a significant impact. And and as you drive through those landscapes, all you can see to the horizon is is barren land. The odd tree here and there, but it's mostly barren land. So it was a little bit crushing. But I stopped the vehicle to reduce the air pressure. Uh, it's very sandy soil, and I didn't want to get bogged. And what what to do? Mm. So another time in my life where I, I threw up a prayer, just firstly asking for forgiveness for destroying the gift of God's creation. And as a result of that destruction. People were suffering. They're hungry, poor. They feared for what tomorrow might bring. And I, in the prayer, I ask God, forgive us, but you still love us. Show us what to do. Open our eyes. Help us. And the amazing thing is that by this time I'd been in Niger two and a half years with that struggle I just described. Eyes open, but totally blind to what had been there, literally at our feet the whole time. Hmm. And on this particular day, what appeared as a bush caught my attention. And I took the trouble to walk over and take a closer look. 
And honestly, in that moment, everything changed. Yeah. Because when you look at the shape of the leaf of any plant, it tells you what it is. For mo most, some are more difficult, but for most, it's a signature. And immediately I knew it's not a bush or a weed, it's a tree. And I leant over, I brushed away the sand, and of course, there's a stump under there. That tree had been cut down, it's re-sprouting from the stump. And so in that instant, everything changed, and I realized it's not a technical issue. I don't need multiple millions of dollars. Everything that I need is in the ground. The real battle, I'm not fighting the Sahara. It's not having a miracle species of tree that can withstand all of those shocks. The real battle is the, what people believe about the value of trees. Yeah. And my whole approach changed. If I could convince farmers and communities, it's in your best interest to allow some of these trees to regrow, then the rest would be relatively easy. Yeah, so it wasn't so much battling the elements anymore, but battling um, people's hearts and minds. <laughs> yes. Uh, to this day, 95% of what I do is not technical. It's working with understanding why people do what they do and walking alongside them to help them see a different future if they behave differently towards nature. Well, that was an incredible realization there. Obviously, that kicked off a, quite a big process uh, where you changed your entire strategy for regrowing trees rather than growing trees from scratch, regrowing them. Um, so could you tell us more about farmer-managed natural regeneration? Certainly. So, th and this is one of the surprising things. When we see bare landscapes, we think, I I've got to add something. I've got to do something. I've got to spend money. And very often what's required actually is to stop doing certain things. If we altered our, the way we use fire, the way we completely overgraze, continuous grazing of the same piece of land or plow every square inch of a farm, or in, in the case of Africa where um, wood is part of the economy and you need it for cooking and so on every day, if we agreed not to clear cut everything, then nature can actually heal itself. And so what I do in this process, and I'll just refer to it as FMNR, it's a little bit shorter than the full name. Yeah. <laughs> Embedded in the land, there are many living tree stumps and even dormant seeds, highly resilient, hardy seeds that could stay in the ground for decades, maybe even centuries. And if you change those behaviors, they're going to start to pop up. And then depending on the context. In the case of farmland, obviously, you don't want a dense forest where you can't grow your crop. You still have to make a living. So the first step is, less, of all these things that are coming up, let's select the ones that we want to regrow into trees. And in, in, in the early days, we started off recommending just leave 20, maybe 40 per hectare. Now, within those ones you've selected, if it's growing from a tree stump, it could have as many as 30 or more stems, all growing and competing for the same light and water and, and uh, nutrients. It's really critical, and this is the farmer managed part of the name, really critical to manage that by culling the excess. Let's cut away the broken, the crooked, the inferior ones, and select for the most robust, the tallest, the strongest. Give the best ones a chance. Yes, and reduce that competition because they're all all drinking from the same pot, you know, all eating from the same pot. And, and then uh, remove some of the side branches 
then critically alter those behaviors that would destroy that tree. That, that's all it is. It's embarrassingly simple, but it works. <laughs> yeah. And so with this method, you're able to get trees growing in some of the most arid regions of the world. What were some of the results that you had there in Niger um, and beyond? Absolutely phenomenal. And most of it happened even without my knowledge at the time. So over the course of the next 20 years, 200 million trees across 5 million hectares of farmland were regenerated by the farmers themselves. The impact, okay, obviously environmentally it had an impact, reduced the temperatures, the wind speed, increased the soil fertility, and so on. Why? Why did the farmers do this? It's estimated that every year without fertilizer or irrigation or government subsidies, just by virtue of working with nature instead of destroying it, Nigerian farmers were growing an additional 500,000 tons of grain every year, enough to feed two and a half million people. Wow. Uh, gross income, the value of what they consume plus the value of the surplus they sell is in the order of $900 million a year, every year. And again, without any cajoling or uh, enforcement or, or in, inducements, benefiting four and a half million people. Incredible impact. And then if I could add just one more thing, because of the diversification, you now have different tree species and shrubs growing in that land. You have more fertile soil. You have a more favorable microclimate. Farmers began growing more and different types of livestock and crops on the same land. So they became much more resilient. Mm. And yes, the shocks still come. We still get drought. We still get sandstorms and so on. They're much, much less likely to have a total, total wipeout because of the diversity than, than previously. And to one degree or another now, this has started to progress through, through World Vision's work around the world, sharing it in 29 countries, sharing it with governments, with other non-government organizations, the momentum starting to pick up elsewhere. Mm. And uh, jumping into some of the projects that you were taking part of, one of those was a, a food program. Could you share a bit more of how that kind of worked within the Niger setting? Uh, certainly. So in normal years, non-famine years, there's no food distribution we simply work with farmers. But in 1983, there was an almost total failure of the rains. And people there are basically subsistence farmers. There's no irrigation. They rely on the rainfall. Crops failed, and it's automatic. There's no social security. There's no backup plan. People were going hungry. And so in time, it, it took us some time to get all the authorization and the funding and that. We were able to access grain. And we, we didn't want to use it in such a way that it would create dependency. And in fact, the government also made a regulation at that time, no free handouts, which worked in our favor. And so we worked out a, a program of activities which included the requirement that the farmers regenerate about 40 trees per hectare on their farmland. And we would go around to the farms, check that the trees were there each month, and then the distribution would follow, food distribution. So very simple uh, food for work program, which we ceased when, when the rains came and they had a, a good harvest in 1984. We withdrew the, the food part of the program, but continued the messaging and the follow-up 
on the importance of regenerating trees on on farmland. Yeah, so it helped like by changing the incentives, you could then uh, have a paradigm shift in the in the wider community. Yes, yes. So uh, you know, we're creatures of habit. We're very stubborn to cling on to what we know and feel secure in. So that food for work program was an essential tipping point. And while at the time, up to 70% of the people abandoned the idea straight away when the food aid stopped, we had attracted a critical mass of around 30% of the people who said, we don't fully understand it, but it didn't actually do any harm. And we're starting to see a few little benefits. Let's go another year and see what happens. So in that context, at that time, the Food for It program was critical to the success of this work. And you've been um, running, or at least part of, the Beating Famine conferences. Could you tell us about those? Oh, okay. So this was a big turnaround too. Um, and, and I learned a lot, wonderful thing, you know, in, in Niger, we started very small, 10 volunteers in 10 villages. Then in 1984, with the Food for Work program, 100 villages. Then I joined World Vision. And this, this idea from a colleague of mine of let's have a beating famine conference and we'll bring in uh, ministers of agriculture from East Africa and other NGOs and farmers organizations and so on. And what I've learned over the years is an incremental increase in effort gives an exponential result. Mm. You, you reach so many more people and they get excited about it and run with it independently of yourself. So, so far, we've had three of these conferences, 2012 in Nairobi, 2015 in Malawi, and I think the last one was 2018, maybe 19, in Mali, the country of Mali, West Africa. The first one, the main question was, what is this FMNR thing? Never heard of it before. Yeah, crazy white farmer. Yeah, how does it differ from the other isms out there? Uh, the second conference, there was much greater awareness and you didn't have to work your way through answering the, the basic questions and there was more planning and preparation for action. The third conference, I was blown away. There were so many research projects and implementation projects. The donors were aware of it. Governments, it was just part of their vocabulary. Yeah, got a life of its own. Totally changed. Amazing. Incredible. Um, and so back to um, FMNR, if I was to start digging under my house in the middle of suburbia, um, called Dial Before You Dig, of course, um, would, would I discover a forest under my house? Well, you're very unlikely to find living tree stumps. They would almost certainly have been removed. If they weren't, they were almost certainly dead because all that time without any light whatsoever. But don't be surprised if you find these very hardy dormant seeds. In, in the Australian context, particularly wattle seeds, they're hard-coated. They can last a long, long time. And the, the key element of FMNR is behavior change. So if you were to agree <laughs> to stop building on that side, if you just assume you've removed the house. <laughs> no plans to, but we'll <laughs> <laughs> you, you agreed not to put another house in its place, then in all likelihood, those seeds would germinate. But even in the absence of that, nature itself hates a vacuum. The wind, the birds, animals will all bring seeds in by one means or another. And in time, if you don't interfere, there'll be this natural colonization. Yeah, fascinating. 
And so, yeah, keeping it in the Australian context, um, deforestation is a massive issue uh, here, but also uh, around the world. According to the Wilderness Society in 2019, they were saying that in Australia, the area uh, equivalent to the MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, uh, is being destroyed every 86 seconds. Um, So that was in 2019 that they said that. And yeah, it just feels like all over the world, like you watch any of David Attenborough's documentaries, they all end with the kind of global map zooming out and the forests just receding due to um, deforestation. Like, does that kind of keep you up at night or do you feel like with some of the work that you're doing and maybe other people you know that nature is resilient enough and, and we can restore what is being lost? Nature certainly has the potential, if if you let it, as I shared, if you allow it, it's more about not doing things. Let's stop bulldozing it. Let's stop completely over grazing, continuous grazing and so on. It has the ability to restore, to heal itself. But it's it's very concerning in that globally, we still lose around 11 million hectares per year. Yeah, it's going to take such a tremendous effort to reverse that. However, I'm a person of hope, and I've seen the power of what happened in Niger, where it actually spread, this restoration movement spread from farmer to farmer at the rate of a quarter of a million hectares per year for 20 years. And it strikes me the significance of that. If the poorest people in the world, mostly illiterate, certainly risk averse you know they're not innovators because they've got too much to lose Mm. if they headed up that movement without any or minimal external support once we wake up as a people as a species and realize there's not much of a future for any of us on this planet if we keep doing what we're doing can you imagine the rate of restoration that's possible with government incentives and enabling policies with the researchers and the educators on board, Hmm. the whole spectrum of non-government organizations, environmental, developmental, and and private enterprise, plus not not to neglect my my first love, the the farmers, the communities themselves, because that's where the impetus will come from. Combine all of that power, and I I am an optimist, and I, I feel, sadly, you have to almost lose something before you wake up. When we wake up, we will move very quickly. I just hope it's not too late. It seems like it can turn quickly if, if all the energy is directed to it. But um, yeah, as you say, we might lose something first. Like there's a lot of biodiversity animals going extinct. But yeah, we can still turn it around. So that's, uh, that's really encouraging. There's, there's always hope. There's always hope. Yeah, for and sure. Maybe Aaron, I could share. I, I came across this lovely saying, uh, it's quoted by John Maxwell, but it came from much earlier period than, than John Maxwell. He's an author and a speaker. And he said, hope has two beautiful daughters, <laughs> anger and courage. Anger at the way things are. And, and you know, this is what drove me as a boy, seeing all that destruction, seeing the injustice. I was angry, mm. but I, I had no outlet for my frustration. The second daughter's name is Courage courage to get off your backside and do something about it within within the limits of your capacity, within your sphere of influence, even if it's a small thing, for goodness sakes, don't sit and let climate change or whatever other threat is out there, don't let it come and steamroll you. Hmm. Get up and fight it. And that, that's what hope springs from. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. So let's um, let's pivot the conversation a little bit. 
um, and talk about you uh, as a missionary. Um, historically, Christian missionaries have got a pretty bad rap um, uh, as being solely proselytizers and uh, being complicit in colonialism and uh, these sorts of things. So maybe could, could you um, tell us a bit about your experience, what it was like with your training, and do you think some of those stereotypes about missionaries are, are warranted or um, perhaps a bit unfair? So it's hard to generalize. I'm sure that's, sadly, it's happened, and I'm sure, sadly, that it still happens to a degree. Um, in our case, my, my wife and I did only a one-year Bible and missions course uh, before we went to Niger. Uh, we did some Wyc- Wycliffe language learning course so that at least we could uh, learn how to learn a language when we got there. Mm. And so in terms of training, it's probably uh, woefully inadequate, but <laughs> I, I was a little bit of an impatient character. I really wanted to get out there. But what being a missionary meant to me, and I'm sure it's the case for most missionaries out there, they they do, I, I think, un, unjustly get a bad rap. There's so many selfless, loving, uh, serving people out there that are all tarred with the same brush. But for me, it was about being obedient to a sense of calling that I had. This was my gift to grow things, and I had the sense of calling it, it, to a certain place in Africa. Hmm. Uh, it involved trusting God. Often, I, I didn't know what to do. I was out of my depth. And while that seems like weakness in our culture, it's actually very, very powerful because then it forces you to rely on God. It forces you to fall back on God and say, God, <laughs> help me. You, you've called me here. Help me. So it's actually, when, when God helps you, and I gave that example of the, the famine and the answers to prayer, it, it's very, very powerful. Uh, it's about being vulnerable. You're going as an adult that can't speak. Uh, going as a person who doesn't know all the intricacies of the culture and the history and, and so on. So it, our whole time there, I guess, to a degree, hopefully it improved, but to a degree, you're very vulnerable. And and maybe, again, that's a strength because if you acknowledge that and you humble yourself to ask the local people questions, you're not going there as the big master lording it over people and telling them what's best for them. And, and they recognize that humility. They they listen to that. So being teachable, being willing to listen and to learn from the people that are there. Importantly, genuinely listening to, to the people we went to help and, and loving them. And I, I don't say that lightly. So, uh, people, even in our own culture, sometimes are hard to love, but that's what we're commanded to do. So for me personally, uh, living my faith and sh- uh, showing God's love through a word, but also through example, mm. do, doing what I said in my own life, not being a hypocrite. Yeah. To, to the degree possible. I think we all have failings. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And um, just an enormous part of uh, of the calling, as you said, uh, in, in your example, was one of service, trying to kind of rebuild communities that were suffering through horrible poverty and uh, all sorts of other issues. Um, what does it mean for that sense of calling and service? What does that mean to you? Yeah. So uh, many things, many things. I'm struggling here where to start, but to, to start somewhere, the Tony post-1984, so if you recall, that was that famine period. That Tony was very, very different to the pre-1984 Tony. Uh, and I mentioned the famine and the answer to prayer, half a million dollars, 
1,800 tons of grain helping 35,000 people in what really was a hopeless situation. We, we didn't have any of those things, but they're all provided. And I'd, I'd ask myself at the start of that period, to, you know, you're questioning your own faith. Mm. Does God really care? The motto of SIM is by prayer. And it seemed to slap me in the face. Does God really answer prayer? And importantly to me, I was still very young then, uh, wet behind the ears. Does God use ordinary people in impossible situations like this? Then 1984 came and went. And I realized, yes, God does care. God loves us more than we love ourselves and he loves others. Uh, God definitely answers prayer in such a powerful, powerful way. And he even uses totally inadequate people like myself in impossible situations. So, mm. of course, you know, you have lapses, you have weaknesses in your faith and that, but I, I'm very, very different to the pre-1984 Tony. <laughs> yeah, and uh, an experience of, like that would uh, would change you. Um, it would force you to learn so many new things and um, just a lot to reflect on. As someone who literally encourages people to grow trees, do they hold a, a special meaning to you? Um, is there a spiritual dimension worth, worth pondering when it comes to the, the humble tree? So of all the questions you posed me, Aaron, this was the one I had to really, really think about. How, how do I answer that? And um, it, it's true, it would have came out in what I've said to this point. I, I do have a special affinity for trees. I, I'm very strange in that way. I love looking at them. I love growing them. Even driving through the countryside, I can't get my eyes off the landscape. I'm, I'm noting trees and which ones and where and why, even on television, I'm not so much watching the plot. I'm looking at the scenery in the background. What's there? And so on. So I'm very different that way to, to many people. Um, and, and, but I really appreciate trees as part, a special part of God's creation. And they remind me of God's love for us and his presence. Mm. Uh, now, most days I ride my bicycle to work through a linear park. It's got a bike track. And those trees along the way, they're like old friends. And just having them there day after day, year after year, and I've, I've been with World Vision 23 years now riding that same track, mm. it kind of um, a reminder of God's constancy in our life. They're just there for you when you need them. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know if that's um, a spiritual connection, but that's how I feel. And I, I've, got, I've got a little piece from um, my book, if I could read it. So it's just the second last chapter, and it, it talks a little bit more about the significance of trees in, in my life and what they've done in my work. So I, I just opened the page. Today, I reflect on that boy in gumboots who yearned to plant trees on a barren hill. Feeling powerless, he reached out to a God of love and compassion and power. I see an earnest teenager and then a restless young man with Liz, that's my wife, Liz by my side who took trusting but faltering steps and who found the faith to keep moving forward despite setbacks and disappointments. More significantly, my doubts faded with the experiences of seeing God at work, the God who does care, who does answer prayer, and who does use very ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He is a God who has replaced despair, brokenness, and tragedy with hope, and hope through, of all things, trees. The lowly tree, despised, taken for granted, 
and abused by humankind from the dawn of time, ignored by scientists seeking technological fixes to problems of their own making, scorned by governments and industry in their blind pursuit of progress and prosperity, cut at the roots by the very farmers whose livelihoods and well-being depend on them. What more fitting symbol of hope than the humble and un unsung tree, which freely serves humanity in silence and forbearance and without fanfare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember reading that and uh, jotting down a note just thinking it was a, <laughs> a beautiful kind of summary. Um, <laughs> I, I'm actually tearing up. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, so that's the connection. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing I've heard you say before when thinking about yeah God's love for us and and the, the connection with nature is that um, you talk about the resilience of nature being kind of like God's forgiveness as well. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's there's a verse, and I, I probably won't quote it word for word, but if we repent of our wicked ways, God will forgive us and heal us. And it's the same with my experience with trees. We, we've done these wicked, wicked things and cut them, burn them, plowed over them. If we repent of those practices and give those trees a chance to come back, they'll actually forgive us. They'll regrow. They'll give us shade. They'll, they'll bless us by enriching the soil and the water and so on. Yeah. And, and that occurred to me, oh, it's just a picture of how God treats us as well. Stunning. <laughs> Uh, so your book was uh, published by Iscast. It's a wonderful book. Everyone should read it. Um, could you tell us more about uh, Iscast as an organisation and your connection with them? Certainly. So it, uh, it's formally uh, where the acronym comes from, the Institute for the Study of Christianity in an Age of Science and Technology. And basically, it's a network of people ranging from students to lay people to distinguished academics. And th these people are exploring the interface of science, technology, and Christian faith. Uh, ISCAST runs conferences and public lectures. It speaks in schools, churches, and theological colleges. And it provides resources to, pr to promote the healthy relationship between the sciences and Christian faith. And, you know, I knew about ISCAST, but I had no idea that they occasionally publish books. And they, they use these books for, for the purposes of their, their mission, to, to show the connection between science and faith. And they had previously published a book by Graham Clark, I Want to Fix Ears. So the wonderful story of the bionic ear. And Chris Mulheron is an old friend. He, he's the CEO or the um, head, head person at ISCAST. I, I, I approached him and I said, oh, I didn't realize that you published. Can we talk? And things went from there. And that lovely, lovely guy, they, they share Sparkless Lit's office with Michael Colley. And Michael edited the book. You commented on the beautiful outlay. That was Michael's design. And, and he gave me tremendous help in, in clarifying my thoughts and making it more uh, a good line of story throughout. Yeah, it, it was a great help. Yeah. So, Tony, as we uh, draw to an end of the episode, what are three resources for anyone that wants to find out more about this stuff? Soil and forests and growing stuff, or, or just three recommendations in general? Yeah. So, so just on those very broad topics, there, this whole library is filled with those books. Just Google the, the keywords that you're looking for, and you'll find 
so much information, but if I could give three recommendations, which sort of step back a little bit, and, and uh, it's, it's a precursor to those important things. And, and it's, it, it harps back to this idea, initially at least, it's about mindset change. What we think about uh, nature, soil, plants, and so on will affect what we do with them. And so the first book is by Bill Mollison on permaculture. Yeah. And I, I unfortunately, I must have lent it to someone. I don't have the proper title, but it's, it's certainly got permaculture in the name and Bill Mollison. Okay. The second one's more recent by a guy called Charles Massey. And the name of the book is The Call of the Reed Warbler. Good name. And it, it's a wonderful book. And it just shows great depth of understanding and respect for nature and what you can expect back from nature when you work with it. Yeah. And the third book, I'm not, I'm not really embarrassed because I, I don't actually make money out of my book. All the money goes back into this work. But I, I would recommend The Forest Underground uh, because of this emphasis on mindset change and understanding the, the value of working with nature. Yeah. <laughs> if I could be so bold as to recommend my own book. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you certainly get a good rap from me. Uh, I thought it was uh, just a, a wonderful, inspiring thing to read. And uh, it was a, a real pleasure having you on the show today, Tony. So thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you for the opportunity, Aaron. And, and the pleasure was mine. Thank you. Most of the news stories we hear with climate change are filled with warnings and bleak milestones that can leave us feeling pretty despondent and helpless. We did an episode on Antarctica and sea levels earlier this year. and Man, I feel like more and more articles are coming out showing the precipitous moment that we could be hurtling towards. But it's important to recognise that there are some good news stories too. The incredible work that Tony and others like him are doing could really move the needle in addressing our problems. Now, I'm not qualified to know how the climate crisis will be solved, but I suspect that the rapid regrowth of trees through farmer-managed natural regeneration can be an important piece of the puzzle and one way we can help restore balance and stability to our ecosystems. As Tony shared, so many benefits flow out from working with nature and ensuring our trees are used and replaced sustainably. And they have a massive social effect too, in alleviating poverty, regulating our microclimates, and ensuring a richer and more resilient spread of biodiversity too. Earlier this year, the HBO series The Last of Us made its debut after being a highly successful video game franchise. And it lays out a dystopian nightmare where a fungal virus wipes out most of humanity and leaves those left on the brink of survival. It's set 20 years on from when the outbreak starts. And one of the things that catches you by surprise is the luscious, green, visually stunning scenery. In this scenario, nature has rebounded incredibly well, where trees and animals have reclaimed the land once taken from them and redeemed the altered landscapes through human inactivity. I've always found those eerily peaceful panoramic views giving off a tinge of hope. It reminds me of the way that in real life, Chernobyl has become hospitable to wildlife again, despite the unimaginable damage wrought by the nuclear reactor and the swirl of radiation that engulfed that region over 30 years ago. So nature finds a way to bounce back. And I love the way that Tony talks about it, reminding him of God's love and forgiveness. That even after we do the worst things, when our pride and greed and our short-sightedness destroy those around us and cut us off from God's life-giving blessings, he still gives us a chance to turn back, to forego our evil ways and find peace in Christ. 
And I feel like Christians, more than anyone, should especially appreciate the symbolic and actual value of trees. I mean, we can use trees for good or evil. Christ himself frequently uses the language of agronomy for his parables and his metaphors. He talks about being connected with the vine. He compares the kingdom of heaven to a mighty oak. The Bible more or less starts and ends with trees. You have the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, and you have the tree of life in Revelation 22. But even more than that, Christ's central and climactic moment is when he's hung on a tree. Trees often represent life, health, and breath. But their misuse also symbolizes death and conflict and scarcity and suffering. I think we do well to appreciate the symbolism and work with nature in the way that God intends. Obviously, it's complicated, and as Tony shared, wood is such a pivotal resource in most, if not all, economies, especially those in developing countries. But there's got to be ways to do it sustainably, and FMNR has a big part to play in it. As we close, I want to reflect on a stunning photo essay of the church forests in Ethiopia by Kieran Dodds. I'll put it in the show notes as well. And it dramatically captures these arid, inhospitable deserts contrasted with these small forest sanctuaries on church land. And to me, it's quite fitting. Churches can be sanctuaries of diversity in a bleak landscape, literally and metaphorically. They can represent life and breath and health and hope. And trees are part of God's tapestry within the Christian story. And I think that's worth exploring and maybe even finding shelter in too. Thanks for listening to Deeper Questions. If you're enjoying these conversations, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to email myself or Amy, or you can check out some of our other content at thirdspace.org.au.